As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally football show today. Packed like the entrance to the Suez punchy like the exit of the sewers it's our totally international week special with thoughts on england from waistcoat to waste generational fallback does gareth still turn us on there's norway's boycott bid wenger arson about with the world cup belgium wales wcl quarterfinals and the return of the inter totally it's all just about squeezing into this totally football show in association with paddy power Thursday 25th of March and hello listener and yes it is a party feeling here on the Totally Show today because it's international time Woo-hoo. and we've got an exciting smorgasbord of treats to dip into with our guests who are favourites uh, Tom Williams, hello Tom Hello James Also with us Michael Cox Hello James And I'm delighted to say Duncan Alexander's here too Hello Duncan Hello James Hello, uh, Duncan. It's not just International Week that you're celebrating, is it? You've also got... Why don't you tell us? Yes, we've launched a new website this morning, uh, Mm. theanalyst.com. So it's kind of fan-facing, and the idea is remember all the stuff that you can find on your local neighbourhood up to Joe, but in a much bigger, more varied fashion, really. So a bit like how... Fernando Torres was was very good in the late 2000s and early 2010s, but now has bulked up to become an even wider uh, available source of things. So, yeah, like that, really. So check it out. Nice. Sexy start to the show, but statistical analysis, website announcements. Opta, of course, <laughs> also had a quiz this week, I believe, uh, Coxie, and you were involved. Uh, yeah, it was. It was very well hosted, as always, by Duncan. Uh, different to usual, of course, because it was virtually rather than in person. And we essentially competed as individuals rather than teams, which was uh, disconcerting. But, you won, uh, I imagine. I didn't. I, I came second uh, behind second. a guy called Will Rickson, I think his name is Duncan, uh, who I think works for Monday Night, Monday Night Football. Damn. Yeah, he's like Jamie Carragher's right-hand man off, off screen. So it's uh, he's the know, hand no up disgrace. Jamie Carragher, clearly. <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, it, as Michael said, it was run individually for the first time, so it was quite good to see some familiar names popping in and out of the top five. But um, right. also, we've now 
amalgamated the scores, crunched them, crunched the numbers. Right. Um, and I can reveal, I mean, by the time the pod goes out, it will have been revealed. So this is less of a reveal than it could be. But um, the Athletic retained their title from last year. In terms of the team conglomerate. You mentioned familiar names in the top five, Duncan. One unfamiliar name, but familiar to listeners, is producer Charlie, who was fourth. Wow. Tell us some of the big names that producer Charlie beat with his with his big brain. Well, it was people from all over the football media industry. So he was up there. I mean, I saw Nick Miller's name pop in the top five. Uh, Daniel Storey was up there for a bit. He claimed he had to answer the door to get an Amazon delivery, which impacted his score. But, I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure Amazon delivered to Leicestershire, so I don't know if we can accept that. <laughs> was, was Jack Lang featuring? No, no, he's... he's... He's got better things to do, I'm sure. His knowledge is too is too uh, esoteric, I, I right, think, okay. for, for quiz purposes. Right. Jack can't even remember where he's watched historical football games, so there's no <laughs> chance he'd be any good on this quiz. Wow. He was watching CCTV of five-a-side football on the Copa Cabana, so it's, you know. Well, if it's quizzes you're after, uh, we've got something pretty special ourselves a little bit later on with, as mentioned, the return of the Intertotally Cup. And round one... What a lineup, Tom! It's you against reigning champion Michael. Any thoughts? Yeah, tough draw. Uh, not going to lie, probably not the draw I would have picked. But at the same time, you know the pressure's all on on Michael. He is the defending champion. He's the one going in there with the big reputation. I've just got to go out there, play my natural, you know, quiz. Uh, and if I end up coming out on top, it, you know, a little little moment of history. Well, indeed, heavy heavy hangs the crown, Michael. Yeah, yeah, looking forward to it. Had a um, had good preparation with the traditional curtain raises to the quiz season with the Opta quiz on Tuesday. So, yeah, looking forward to uh, later on. And in case you're wondering, listener, Michael does have one of those moving backgrounds behind him with various sponsors' names as he made that <laughs> statement. Uh, well, lots of that to come. Lots of international reaction. We've got uh, WCL quarterfinals and more. Uh, but a salute first, though, to Frank Worthington, another famous name from the English game that left us this week. One of the sport's great mavericks, but as is often the case, his demise really a kind of chance to discover or rediscover for, for many the stories behind the name. For example, a, a lot of people absolutely stunned to witness that defining goal that he scored against uh, Ipswich in in probably his greatest season when he when he finished a Golden Boot when he was playing for Bolton back in the late 70s. Wellington, um, Wellington now from Dowling's header and Wellington! And what a beautiful Wellington goal! I'm surprised that, that there were people who hadn't seen it before. Um, it's sort of one of the iconic goals of English football history. And I remember as a kid, my dad telling me about it. Um, and this is obviously pre-YouTube um, and... Uh, I remember him sort of telling me how, you know, the ball had kind of come out and Worthington sort of juggles it a couple of times on the edge of the box and then makes as if he's just going to hook the ball back into the area. So the defence, the Ipswich defence all push up playing offside. But in fact, he's just hit it over his own head to himself, volleys it bottom right. And I remember sort of like, you know, having this this sort of mental image of the goal in my head, uh, you know, as, as a kid and then, you know, sort of saw the footage and it was every bit as good as... Uh, as it had been made out to be. Um, so, yes, it was nice to see that all over everyone's Twitter timelines the other day. It was very much the sort of goal you'd see in a, in a Royal of the Rovers in sort of the 1980s. Like, a, it, it seemed improbable, like a player would think to do that. But I saw a miss by Kenny Dalgleish at Old Trafford the other day, which I'd never seen before, from the 80s or late 70s. And it all comes about because 
I can't remember the player who does it, but he does the same thing over the on-rushing United defence. He will just sprint out for offside at, at an incredible pace and leave the entire... So if you timed it right, you've got the entire attacking half. So Liverpool have two versus the goalkeeper when they still manage to, to miss the chance. But that was a very 1980s thing, this kind of incredibly fast, almost stupid offside trap. Well, didn't Ronald Koeman score a goal like that, either for Barcelona or for the Netherlands, where I think the ball comes to him sort of midway inside the opposition half, he chips it over the defence, who all rush out in sort of a slightly comical fashion, but then he charges through himself and then I think either chips the keeper or, or knocks it past him. Mm-hmm. A lot of Frank Worthington's more uh, celebrated exploits wouldn't have sat happily in the pages of Roy of the Rovers, uh, described as a, a, a working-class George Best uh, by his manager at Huddersfield Town and Bolton, uh, Ian Greaves. Uh, certainly a man who seemed to make the most of his time on earth, and uh, we salute Frank Worthington. Uh, well, let's talk now some midweek international action. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Mighty touch from Bale, Connor Roberts sits back with Gareth Bale, who puts in a beautiful ball, and it's swept home. What a move that is, finished off, stroked home by Harry Wilson. International weekend and there's been action already. Tom, your Wales has been in the thick of it. Belgium Wales, Wednesday night, and what an opening goal. Yeah, absolutely sensational goal. Um, as, I, as I remarked on Twitter, one of the best Wales goals I can ever remember. Um, it was about 10 minutes in, playing on an awful pitch in, in Leuven, in, in Belgium. A really greasy player slipping all over the place. And Wales despite the fact they're playing on this terrible pitch against the number one ranked team in the world, managed to construct a 17-pass move involving all 10 outfield players, which culminates in Harry Wilson playing the ball forward to Gareth Bale. He flicks it out first time to Connor Roberts. Connor Roberts plays it back to Bale. And then Bale, spotting the sort of third-man run of Wilson into the box, steers it into his path. Harry Wilson opens his body, left foot, bottom left corner. Wales 1-0 up, up and running. Uh, and, and looking forward to another famous win over Belgium, who Wales have, have had a pretty decent record against of late, uh, only to then uh, get beaten 3-1. Mm, 3-1. A decent second-half performance until that penalty rather undid you, the, the third goal. But watching Belgium, the, the number one ranked team of the world, but it's it's a bit an exercise in just going, oh, crikey, he's Belgian as well. And him too. Astonishing lineup, really. Until you get to the bench where Roberto Martinez pops up, another... Little surprise. Uh, it's an incredible lineup, though, isn't it? Where, where's the weak point in that Belgian team, Tom? I mean, the, the defence is getting on a bit. Last night they played with a back three of uh, Alderweireld, Thomas Vermaelen, uh, which sort of took me back a bit, uh, and, and Jan Vertonghen. Um, there's not a huge amount of pace in that back line. They brought Jason Denier on, the, the Lyon centre back in second half. He always looks pretty solid for Lyon and quite shaky for Belgium. Um, and as you say, Wales made a really good start to the second half, looked like they were you know, really in the game and then gave away an avoidable penalty that Lukaku tucked away. But yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty ridiculous. You look at that, that Belgium team on, on paper and you, you, you fully understand why they're the number one ranked team in the world. They've not lost a home qualifying match since 2010 or something. And I think they, they feel more than uh, they feel closer to the sum of their collective parts than previous Belgium teams we've seen obviously go back to uh, the famous uh, Euro 2016 quarter final when Wales knocked Belgium out and that was 
you know, that was a, a seen as a, a huge disappointment for that team because it's it's pretty much the same players they have now. But they they do seem to have have kicked on since then. Obviously, the next you know the next objective for them for this you know sort of once in a generation group of players is to is to win a big tournament. Mm. Sorry, that's Belgium you're talking about, not not Wales. Yeah, sorry, I should should specify Belgium. Right, it, but it, it, despite the three one defeat, you're left feeling quietly positive. I imagine are you about uh, Robert Page's side? Yeah, I mean, there there were a few things that were sort of uncommon from a, a Wales perspective. They didn't look after the ball all that well, which is usually something Wales always do. And this sort of goes back to, you know, Chris Coleman's tenure, even before that, you know, Gary Speed's tenure. Wales have been a, a really good passing team for the last few years now. And whether it was the pitch, whether it was because, you know, they were sort of missing key players. Joe Allen made his return after a long absence and ended up limping off after about uh, eight to nine minutes, which was a blow. A little bit shaky in possession. Um, but yeah, apart from that, you know, they had a good go. They made chances... And it's it's the toughest game of the um, of the qualifying campaign. It's already out of the way. That the one slight worry now is that Czech Republic, who Wales play next week, uh, won six two against Estonia. Thomas mm. Suchek hat trick. Uh, so they're looking pretty good. And and you know that is basically what the group is going to come down to. I don't think anyone's going to stop Belgium from winning it. So it is going to be a battle between Wales and and the Czechs to see who can finish second. Brilliant. All right. Meantime, at the Welsh training camp, of course, Gareth Bale. Uh, causing confusion and an uproar with his comments about basically going back to Spurs for a quick training camp, essentially, and that he will be returning to Madrid. Thank you very much. At the end of the season, Scam Allardyce tweeting, Gareth Bale hit up Tottenham at 3am asking you up and they answered. What a life. <laughs> Is that a fair assessment? Uh, I mean, I you sort of wonder how that that uh, little snippet of the interview went down in Madrid because I can't imagine anyone in Madrid is too excited at the thought of of Bale returning to the club for next season. It put me in mind of that. I'm trying to think who it is. It's like a gif or like a, a little video you, you occasionally see of some American sports person uh, trying to get into uh, a training facility that they've been locked out of and they're there sort of like just kind of pulling on the door. Um, and I never, sort of wonder never, whether that's never I wonder whether this, that's Tom. what awaits Bale when he does, does when he anybody goes back know to which GIF or GIF that Tom's no, referring to? Tom, Tom seems to be football Twitter's leading expert on GIFs these days. So uh, I do I do it. enjoy a GIF. It's I mean someone will know it. It's probably some world famous I know like basketball player. There we go. Mm. There we go. Yeah. yeah. What happens? He's trying to get in. Can't get in. It's like it's actually it's not a gif. It's a little video clip, and I think he is he maybe interviewed. He's like, oh, you know, can't wait to you know get back in training with the boys, and then he is shown arriving at the door of the training complex, and it's been locked because they they don't want him to come in. And he's you're kidding, standing there, sort of like like tugging on the door handle. Crikey! Anyway, we've all been there. Mm. Other scores for around the Wednesday night action: Republic of Ireland scored a goal and took the lead in their uh, game away at Serbia. They ended up losing three two. A brace from Alex Mitrovic, first goal of which the chip is pretty special. Oh, absolute he's, beauty. Mm, he's now Serbia's joint top scorer. Uh, world champions France fielded an all-star lineup, but got held 1-1 by Ukraine. Griezmann with a lovely curler uh, for the opener. Ukraine then jammily deflecting one in off Kimpembe. Uh, elsewhere, as Tom mentioned, Thomas Suchek got a hat-trick as Czech Republic did Estonia 6-2. And a hat-trick as well for Barak Yilmaz at the age of 35. Uh, that was in Turkey's 4-2 defeat of the Netherlands. And yes, Yilmaz is now the oldest European player to score a hat-trick in World Cup or Euro qualifying history. Woof. 
bad result that for the old Dutch and not a sensation to reveal that. But you know they didn't qualify for the for the last World Cup and they only let in twelve goals in that campaign. So they've already conceded a third of that in one game. So they they do have a particularly on-off relationship with qualifying for the World Cup. Holland um, obviously you know got to the semis in 2014 and then didn't qualify for 2018 so you'd expect them to to bounce back this time but that's not a good start and did the same did the same thing go to the semis in 98 and didn't qualify for 2002 as well I, I, I thought they got unlucky in this game actually I watched this one and I mean they had missed penalty shot hit the post the turkey's opener was against the run of play Netherlands has started quite well so I wouldn't read too much into the uh, result but this is shaping up to be maybe the most interesting group in the European section well, also in that group are Norway, who we'll be talking about very, very shortly, and also Montenegro, Latvia and, and Gibraltar. So mm, all is not yet lost for Netherlands, but not a great start. Just a word on Yilmaz. Um, he joined Lille last summer uh, at the age of 35. He'd only ever played in Turkey, except for one season in China. Um, and I mean, he's got a great scoring record for Turkey. He had a very good scoring record in his last few seasons uh, playing in Turkey. But I did wonder how well he'd fare in Liga, which is quite a physical league. Lots of young, very quick defenders, and he's been brilliant. He's—I I can't think of many players who I've enjoyed watching as much as as him this season. Not particularly quick, but so adroit technically. Always seems to make the right choices. Strikes the ball beautifully. Um, and has been a really important uh, factor in, in, in Lille's title charge this season. OK. Uh, Turkey have a big game coming up in the next few days, which we'll be discussing shortly. Tom, though, since you're on, just to clarify something, last Thursday we had a bit of a discussion within a debate about which player had the strongest week of foot about the phrase chocolate foot. Could you just clarify what that means for Dutch folk? Chocolade bane. Uh, it is a player's weaker foot. Right. So in Robin van Persie's case, it would be his right foot. In Arjen Robin's case, uh, of course, it would also be his right foot. <laughs> and yeah, a, a, just a, a really nice little uh, turn mm. of phrase to describe it, a, a player's weaker foot. I guess we describe it as, you know, the, 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 the foot you use for, for, for getting on the bus or whatever. Uh, right. And I, I don't know of any other... What do we? I've never heard that one. I've heard people say standing leg. I've, I've, like always, I've, I've damaged my shoe. Which one? The one I used to get on the bus? Oh, yeah, the, the left. I'm sure yeah, I've heard, yeah. yeah. I don't know, maybe I've just invented that. While trying um, to get into the training ground that's been locked against me. Yeah, there you go. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know of any equivalent phrases in in the sort of but global cho- football lexicon. But chocolate leg, is it for anyone's weaker foot or does it have to be a particular kind of weaker foot? Is it is it a sort of completely useless weaker foot? Is it a kind of uh, lamella weaker foot? I mean, it's just your weaker foot, and you'd only use anyway. it in like a you know a football. Can you have context. two chocolate feet? Um, <laughs> I, I mean, you could probably say that as like a, right. as, as a joke. Well, but if you're actually made out of chocolate, what do you do then? Anyway, we laugh about it, but the World Cup in uh, Qatar is a, a very real challenge, and one actually that's been highlighted this week. And I'm, I'm amazed that I'm making the segue. But um, next up, we are going to be talking about. Norway, who began their road to the World Cup in Qatar on Wednesday night against Gibraltar. Uh, This is after calls from within the Norwegian football community for the national side to actually boycott the Qatar World Cup in protest at the ongoing exploitation of migrant workers there. Uh, How serious a proposal was this? 
and what happens next. Let's find out from football consultant and wearer of many footballing hats, Tor Christian Carlson. Tor, hello. Thank, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, first of all, this this call for the Norway, Norway side to boycott the Qatar World Cup, uh, how serious was it? How much support did it get in Norway? Pretty amazingly uh, high, I would say, um, considering that it started off like a grassroots movement, if you like. Um, it was Tromsø that first came out and took a stand against it as a club, and then um, five or six other top league clubs followed suit. Um, but I think what we need to keep in mind is that this is mainly driven by um, activist supporters, if you like. And uh, I'm not saying that in derogatory terms. But um, the way Norwegian clubs are structured is that they are members' clubs and the members are able to raise um, kind of motions at the AGMs. And um, and that's what happened in these cases. So clubs uh, during the AGMs were kind of um, forced to um, to to take the, the supporters' uh, opinion into consideration, and that led to um, club after club um, supporting the boycott. Right, and you can understand why the 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 call for a boycott on moral and ethical grounds. And the the statement from I think Tromsø originally talking about the corruption and modern slavery involved in the in Qatar's bid, which has seen estimates are six and a half thousand migrant worker deaths in a decade, which is which close to two a day, which is extraordinary. Was the hope that other countries might show support? And after the Norwegian FA decided that no, they would be playing Wednesday's game against Gibraltar, but wearing special T-shirts. Um, what is the, what's the future now? Is there a hope that this is somehow going to snowball beyond Norway still? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, it's, it's still not um, clear what position the Norwegian FA will take on this. Obviously, up to now, they are um, very much in favour of alt- alternative measures. Um, you know, um, there is a, there is the stance that, um, you know, by being in the competition and by qualifying to the World Cup, Norway can take um, use their um, entry to the World Cup to affect things in, in Qatar and uh, improve the, the, the situation there. But um, what, what happened now, I think the crucial point was the, the general meeting of the FA, which was, I think, about 10, 14 days ago. Um, this particular um, initiative to boycott uh, Qatar didn't end up on the agenda, uh, which was more of a bureaucratical um, reason for that, uh, because it wasn't raised within the the, the, the deadline. Uh, but there will be an extraordinary general assembly in in the autumn, in which this uh, particular situation will be on the agenda. And uh, there was a poll in. I think Norway's number one newspaper, Vega, two or three days ago, which said that I think close to 70% of people were backing the boycott. That's remarkable. I wonder how that would translate to, to other countries as well, because it does feel like the kind of thing a lot of people would get behind if, if they felt that there were a lot of institutions involved. But the FA, the Norwegian FA's uh, statement, I, th- I think, was talking about 
fears that a cancellation of the World Cup would lead to acute unemployment among hundreds of thousands of, of workers. I, I don't know how much people would back that stance. But the notion of using participation as a way of uh, shining a light on the repressive aspects of, of, of Qatar's regime and, and the practices that have been going on there. How much of FIFA do you think going to allow of that kind of thing? Have, has there been any reaction to the Norway T-shirts about human rights on and off the pitch that were worn on Wednesday night? No, um, not really. I think the, you know, the message was quite, um, you know, carefully written. Obviously, I think we would look silly if uh, if we'd been thrown out for mixing football and and politics at this stage by uh, you know sporting really, um, really strong messages on 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 those t-shirts. So obviously, there is a line there that you don't want to cross. But uh, I think you touched on it earlier. I think the key for this kind of um, movement to gather pace is to get other other countries on board. And obviously, we don't know what is being done at the behind-the-scenes diplomatic level. Um, and usually, you know, there is a hierarchy here, and uh, generally the Nordic countries uh, have tended to stick together in these matters. And uh, so far, there's, I think the D- Denmark have, some Danish clubs have kind of um, joined this. Um, but... There isn't a kind of a unified Nordic movement as such. And um, and then obviously there's UEFA. Uh, another thing that's, um I think has kind of halted the whole movement is the fact that we don't know the repercussions. So if Norway were to boycott uh, Qatar 2022, then what would be the repercussions financially as well as uh, for the right holders and for for football beyond the men's game? So would Norway be barred from um, youth competition, from the women's competition? So I think those are things that you really need to to understand before voting um, on this matter. Yeah, which is why you would need as, as many uh, nations involved as possible. It'd be interesting to see uh, whether in, or whether we're talking about a boycott or, or, or just in terms of messages, etc., what impact Wednesday night's game and this whole story has in in among supporters in, in other countries. But, Tor, thank you so much uh, for now for, for uh, talking us through that. Pleasure, James. Tor Christian Carlson there. It's a difficult one because I think if you ask most football people, much as they love the World Cup, perhaps beyond any other footballing entity, not many uh, people would feel happy with the way the World Cup ended up in Qatar or the way that things have been handled or the, or the kind of uh, government that they are. I mean, if, for example, say, 30 years ago, the World Cup had been given to apartheid South Africa, I don't think anyone would have found it fanciful to suggest nations shouldn't have gone. And in, in many ways, there is a, that kind of regime operating in Qatar, he said, getting a bit political. Um, yeah, it's a tough one. And yet here we all are talking about the World Cup qualifiers. No, I completely agree. I don't think most people disagree with anything that you've said there, James. I almost feel like the unusual nature of the football calendar in the last year or so is meant we've almost forgotten about it. We're almost just delighted that World Cup qualifiers and World Cup qualification can happen in any form. Um, you know, there, there have been some question marks about whether this should have been a round of World Cup qualifiers. So I agree, we've almost got sidetracked and maybe gone away from the bigger issue of Qatar. And fair play to Norway for putting it back on the agenda. Mm, absolutely. It's a bit virtual at the moment. It's World Cup qualifiers. But when, you know, when and if, and I think it is a when, we, we get to Qatar as the actual host, uh, it'll be an entirely different uh, situation, Tom. 
Yeah, I mean, there is just an acceptance, isn't there, that this World Cup will be played in Qatar, even though the you know the voting process was questionable, shall we say? Even though this is I a think country demonstrably with a, corrupt now, isn't it? Well, there we go. Um, and you know, being played in a country with a, a an appalling human rights record, uh, and no one should feel good about that. But that that is increasingly the way of modern football. You know, we embrace. Uh, states uh, with with vast wealth because they pour money into our sport and they they put on you know glitzy tournaments and and and, and they sponsor teams and, and they they fund clubs and, and all the rest of it and and it does it does leave a it does leave a sour taste and and I yeah I th- I think it's it's commendable that Norway have have taken this step and, and are prepared to be you know the ones who sort of stick their head above the parapet first you would hope that that would be joined by other football associations and other nations but at the same time you know you the chances of this tournament being taken off Qatar um, are uh, you know are pretty much non-existent I would have thought so mm. it, you know it's is it is it is it too late to you know to, to affect any meaningful change possibly but at least it's a sign that that football isn't uh, you know it hasn't entirely got to the point where it's prepared to abandon all its principles just because a country like Qatar has has put enough money on the table to host a tournament no a no, very very fair point I, mean, I think whether or not it takes place and it, it will take place in Qatar it doesn't mean that gestures like this can't have some impact in terms of bringing change about and and, and I guess that would be the hope of the Norwegian FA with with the, the gestures they've already got in mind well, Duncan well also it's it's particularly powerful from Norway because they've waited a long time to have a team and a squad as good as this you know if they'd have done it 10 or so years ago it could have been seen as a bit of an empty gesture if they were going to come fourth or fifth in their group but you know you look at their team now and it's like with that Turkey result you could see them easily finishing top of the of the group now with with uh, the Netherlands having dropped drop points so you know that just kind of only you know enhances what they did. Norway getting their campaign underway on Wednesday with a 3-0 win over Gibraltar and their next clash is against Turkey. We'll be discussing that a little bit later on. But speaking of World Cup controversy, slightly smaller one, which came out this week uh, as Arsene Wenger unveiled his World Cup every two years proposals with Christmas at weekends. Uh, This brought widespread horror. Uh, But let's hear him out, shall we? Kick out of the parallel competitions out of the game, people must understand what is at stake and only have games with meaning. If you look at the teams in the World Cup, usually the average age is 27 or 28. Because the World Cup is every four years, there are very few chances to win it again because when they go back to the next World Cup, they are 32 or 33. That's why maybe we should organise the World Cup every two years. Huh. Now, to make this happen... How did Arsene... you get him on the show? That's amazing. What a coup. Thanks, Arsene. <laughs> to make this happen, uh, Arsene suggests concentrating all the qualifiers into one month or perhaps two quadruples in October. I'm not sure what that means, but basically a, a, a chunk in October and February, reducing the amount of international breaks thus needed during the season and scrapping the Nations League to make room for the move, which is a shame because they've only just made all the merchandise and stuff. I actually quite like this idea um no time I mean, the business of the age it's true you know the age of players i mean it would have helped gaza wouldn't it that's the he's it's a it's a pro 
Gaza move because he only, obviously only got to play in one World Cup and if you'd have said that to someone in July 1990 they'd have cried more than Gaza probably. But so. he didn't get to the 94 World Cup not because they waited till 94 but because England didn't qualify. Well yeah that's what I mean but if you don't qualify for a World Cup you're going to miss eight years of your career uh, by which point you'll have annoyed Glenn Hoddle and he'd have been playing soft jazz as he doesn't get you in the squad so. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Arsene Wenger just reminds you of like recently retired dads who have have got loads of time on their hands and lots of nervous energy and if he was you know a suburban dad he would have converted his garden shed into a little one-man pub or something and it would have been slightly he's done tragic that and but now it, he's doing the world cup <laughs> well this is it and he just keeps coming out with ideas. and i know it's his job to come out with ideas and proposals Tom, to improve the game called him a suburban retired dad. Some respect on the name. <laughs> imagine, imagine if... No, just just say for the sake of argument, imagine if back in the day they had only got all the teams together in this country once every four years to decide who was best because, you know, logistics and that. And then someone said, some retired dad in suburbia, someone said, why don't we do a title race every year? Uh, would people have said, no, you can't do that, it'll make it less special or something? No, they'd have gone, yeah, let's go for it. I'm not against progress. I just want to put that out there. Just not particularly in favour of this specific proposal uh, of progress. I would, I'd say, OK, let's do it if they reduce the size of the World Cup again because it's ever more increasing right. in size. And that just, you know, I'm not particularly looking forward to 2026 when it's groups of three, about 4,000 groups of three. So if it was every two years but they went back to, a let's say, a 32-team model, I think that would, that would be OK. Okay. Arson, there you go. Uh, Michael? Yeah, it's not a great idea. I agree with Duncan. I think the format of a lot of international co- uh, competitions is causing a real problem at the moment. The, the Cop for America, the upcoming <laughs> format, is the worst I've ever seen in the history of association football. Is it a Swiss um, league? It's not. It's even worse than that. It's uh, two groups of five. And then the top four from each group go through, which is just like... <laughs> the jeopardy. The sheer I mean, jeopardy. What, is the po- what on earth is the point in that? That's just... I will not be watching any of the group stage. Knockouts might be fun. But taking... I mean, how many games is that to eliminate two sides? Complete waste of time. There's stuff like that that I think is, is could actually be a bit of a threat to the popularity of international football because you do end up with so many meaningless games uh, and the whole joy of the world cup was traditionally that every game counted you know every game was really really important and i think that has been lost a little bit yeah if we think back to the last world cup the group stage was actually quite good for once but i think that was mainly down to var coming in and giving a loads of penalties and stuff in every game which increased the number of goals a lot um and you do get these little points in World Cup history. So after 1990, which was so defensive, they brought in the back pass rule in, in 1992. And the 94 World Cup was generally seen as one of the most entertaining. You know, the group stages were, were really good. Um, what, 94? Yeah. Was it? Yeah, I think they were good. I think the group stages were pretty good. Oh, Alex better and, than 1990, um, anyway. Well, yeah, everything was better than 1990. Well, yeah, yeah. But... um. You do get these kind of. It gets to a point where they they go, oh no, we really are messing up the the formula a bit here, and they kind of change it, and then everyone's like, yeah, World Cup's good again, and then mm. they change it again. Well, it's like you look at the Euro Euro twenty twelve, which was the last one with only sixteen teams. I think I'm right in saying four groups, and there were some fantastic groups, and every game had a sense of jeopardy because they were, you know, the sixteen best teams on the continent, you know, or thereabouts, and a defeat in a group stage game 
felt like it could very easily be fatal. But then Euro 2016, the expanded tournament, you had to try quite hard not to qualify from the groups. And, and you had this very unsatisfactory, uh, unsatisfying, you know, qualification uh, system where, you know, whereby it wasn't just the top Wales two from each group go through. Um, and it sort of ruined it. I'd, Wales would have gone through even uh, under the old <laughs> Portugal, uh, Portugal regime. didn't win a group game, did they? Well, yeah, yeah. Which is, but, but Italy yeah. didn't win a group game at the 82 World Cup and they still were world champions. Anyway, I think the lesson that Arsene will draw from this is that World Cup reform, yes, but make tournaments smaller, not more often. Mm. Yeah, snappy. Well, wasn't World Cup 1982 essentially the same issue? Because it was it was a twenty four team tournament, wasn't it? So it's basically oh. it's, it's the same argument, really. Okay, so much for that. No, on twenty four uh, teams. Next up, let's talk England and the games that everyone's looking forward to this weekend, and whether those are the same thing. At Paddy Power, we know competition for the remote control can be fierce at the weekends. So, in order to give the non-football-loving occupants of your house something to do, here are some of our top suggestions. Go for a walk. Walk the dog. Walk to the shops. Go cycling. Cycle the dog. Recycle the dog. Just go! All very good options, we say. And that's not the only one. If one leg of your four-plus-fold acre lets you down, get a free bet on all football leagues and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg, online exclusive, exclude shop bets, T's and C's apply, 18 plus, begamblerware.org. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Duncan, you want to talk about Portugal uh, before we get on to the stuff coming up? Because Portugal played and they won 1 0, but you weren't impressed, Duncan. Well, Portugal struggled a lot in the game. Um, Azerbaijan came back in the second half and, and could have equalised but it was also amusing to see that Portugal's goal was a, was an own goal. A cross came in and the keeper punched it into the back defender and it went in but if the ball had passed those players Ronaldo would have had a tap in and I, I've never seen someone look more annoyed at his own team scoring a goal because it you know and what's an own goal to his ever well, burgeoning... Hang on, surely he can't have looked as annoyed as he did when Nani deprived him from scoring one of the great solo goals in that friendly against Spain. Yeah, but that yeah, wasn't that was a goal, was it? it? wasn't a goal. Oh, yeah, sorry, good point. Good point. I, I, but he, I was yeah, it was, it was not, yeah, it wasn't, yeah. it was, I'd say maybe the levels were sort of Frank Lampard when he scored against Chelsea for Manchester City in the Premier League. It was that sort of, <laughs> like, what, what are goals? That's the only What's celebration, the that's the only celebration in history that has directly led to a, a player getting a managerial job, I think. If, yeah. if, he'd, if he'd celebrated that goal, he would never have got the Chelsea job, but he was yeah. so mortified to score against Chelsea that he had to be appointed as manager one day. He just gets it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now, um, we heard that Wales begun their campaign with defeat at the hands of Belgium. Northern Ireland will be beginning the road to Qatar Thursday evening against Italy. Austria will be the opponents for Scotland. And England get their campaign underway against San Marino, which gives us a chance to replay this all-time classic moment. Against Holland. I'm sure you're aware now of what's at stake. 
And Bachocchi, number nine, picks the ball up straight away and San Marino launched the first attack. Oh, and a mistake by Stuart Pearce and San Marino had scored. I don't believe this. Wow, there it was, 1993. England 1-7-1 and missed, up on, missed out on the World Cup because Holland won anyway. Michael, where were you when San Marino scored after eight seconds? Uh, I don't know. I'd, I'd never watched a football match by that stage. I was oh, really? Okay. Six. So really, can't 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 give you that one. I'm afraid. But that was such a huge game. I thought everybody, you know, even six-year-olds would have been clustered around the. No, no. Bakelite. Well, none of none of my family liked football, so really, can't can't tell you where it was. I'm afraid. Okay. Well, uh, I know where you'll be this weekend when England. Um, <laughs> You know what? I won't be. I won't be on. Won't be on my sofa watching it. Really? Uh, well, England actually playing. It may well have indeed played the San Marino by the time you hear this. Actually, listeners, that's Thursday evening, and then after that, uh, perhaps more arduously for uh, Gareth Southgate's side, it's Albania. A trip to Tirana with its scenic boulevards and statue of Norman wisdom. Um, what did you make of Gareth's squad for these three games? No big names left out or anything, was there? Well, the Alexander-Arnold absence is, is obviously a huge story. I mean, there's an argument that he's the, the most revered right-back in, in Europe. Um, and yet there's a very good chance that he won't be going to the tournament. I think Southgate has clearly picked on the strength of past England performances. A lot of the headlines were about, you know, he'd said Alexander-Arnold's form has dipped at club level. Um, which is true, although it was dipping from a very high level. But really, if you look at the quotes, Southgate went to a lot more depth about past performances for England. And I think reality is he's never really looked comfortable for England. I don't know whether there's any reason for that. He hasn't been played out of position, really. He's been fielded where he'd want to be fielded. But, you know, Kieran Trippi has always done very well for England. Cole Walker's in there because he can play right-sided centre-back. And it looks like England will play with a three-man defence. And then if you go back to the, the last international break, which I think most people don't really remember because there's been so much football this year and, you know, international breaks in November uh, can get forgotten by March. But Alexander-Arnold didn't have a good game for England and he was replaced by Rhys James for the next game. And Rhys James was uh, England's man of the match against Denmark. So, you know, it's been about past performance. And um, personally, I don't agree with the decision. I, I, you know, I think you would you would always think a player of that calibre should be in the squad and able to get another chance. But I do welcome the fact that an England manager is picking on the strength of past England performances rather than just constantly hoping players will replicate their club form at international level when when evidence doesn't suggest that, which I think is where England have gone wrong uh, quite a lot in the past, particularly under the Ericsson era. And the other story with England this weekend is obviously with Jordan Pickford, um, not in the squad. This is a real chance, I think, for one of the goalkeepers I mean, probably Dean Henderson, you'd think, to, to stake his claim to be England's first-choice keeper. Um, you know, if Henderson keeps his place in the United team for the rest of the season, I'm pretty sure he'll be England's goalie for the Euros. Um, you know, a lot, the only doubt people had about him before this season was whether he could pass the ball uh, like a modern keeper should. Obviously, having been at Sheffield United last season, only took, uh, I think, one goal kick in their own penalty area. Um, but he's adapted very well with United, so there's no issues there. You mentioned uh, Norman Wisdom uh, and speaking of British comedians popping up unexpectedly in Eastern Europe, uh, I was in Podgorica uh, a few years ago to cover an England qualifying match against Montenegro. I was staying in a hotel and there was a bloke working there, probably a few years older than me, uh, who didn't speak a word of English and I kept sort of bumping into him at a hotel. I think he might have 
sort of carried my suitcase to my room and served me breakfast one day and you know we'd sort of smile at each other and then you know go our separate ways and I think the second day that I was there we walked past each other in the lobby and sort of smiled uh, and then when he was about six feet away from me he just goes Rodney you plonker <laughs> and it was the mo- one of the most perfect and also incongruous Del Boy impersonations you've ever heard and he sort of smiled and I looked at him quizzically and then uh, you know went on my way and it turns out that Only Fools and Horses is massively popular in Montenegro. And there is an Only Fools and Horses theme pub called the Nag's Head in Podgorica, uh, which sadly I didn't have time to check out. But if anyone's passing through the Montenegrin capital uh, at any point, probably worth going to have a look. But why did he do that at you? Because just because you're English? Because he knew I was British, I guess. And he was perhaps frustrated by his inability to communicate with me in any way. Right. Uh, and the universal thought, language well, of only fools and horses. The, the universal language, only fools and horses. Also, you know, when am I going to get an opportunity again to, to you know, to, to Del- dust off my Del Boy impersonation? Right. Tom, you was. brought some refreshingly different content today, I, I have to say. <laughs> Thanks. That's um, the sort of vibe I aim for. Right. Okay. Well, anyway, so that's what England are up to. The Albania game is coming up this week. And then I think, is it Poland, the third of the the triumvirate? We'll review how things go, certainly against San Marino and Albania in Monday's show. But what else from this weekend are you guys going to be watching out for? Tom? Uh, Kazakhstan against France on Sunday afternoon. Uh, So France uh, trying to make up for the fact they dropped points against Ukraine in their opener. Um, France obviously favourites, but Kazakhstan uh, are the team who thrashed Scotland 3-0 at the start of qualifiers for the Euro in the game that put pay to Alex McLeish as Scotland manager for the second time. They were also a a minute away from getting a a goalless draw away to Russia during that campaign. Um, uh, They play on a synthetic pitch, which France are a little bit worried about. And Didier Deschamps has pledged to rotate his starting eleven because they then play uh, Bosnia in their third game, which is another tricky, mm. uh, tricky one. And the expectation was that France would beat Ukraine in their opener, and then they could then rotate against Kazakhstan without right. having to worry too much. But now there is much more pressure on France to get a result here, um, and a few players who could come into the the France team having been recalled to the squad after periods on the sidelines. Tangi Ndombele is back in, uh, having now uh, finally won Jose Mourinho's trust at Spurs. Usman Dembele as well, Thomas Lamar. Um, so it could be a bit of a throwback uh, France team uh, mm. lining up in this one. It's a shame if they do rotate because it was an exciting lineup that Deschamps went, surprisingly so, uh, against Ukraine with uh, two strikers and Mbappe on one side and Coman on the other. Yeah, I mean, Deschamps used France's uh, games in the autumn uh, in quite an interesting way, I thought, in that France won the last World Cup with this sort of asymmetric 4-2-3-1 with Blaise Matuidi as a kind of hard-working left-sided midfielder, counterbalancing Mbappe on the right. But you know, their, their football wasn't particularly great and it hasn't been you know, ever since. So Deschamps used those games in the autumn to test out different systems and neither of those systems, although some of them look quite good on paper, were particularly convincing. So when France played Portugal in their sort of key Nations League game in November, they went back to the asymmetric 4-2-3-1 from the World Cup. This time with Adrian Rabio on the left-hand side, Besma Tweedy having sort of effectively retired from international football and moving to Miami. Um, and yeah, I think people expected that that was the sort of team that he would pick 
to play Ukraine, but he went with Mbappe and Komen on the on the wings and Giroud and Griezmann up front, which is about as attacking a, a France team as I think Deschamps has ever picked. But sadly, given that you know that, that France underperformed, you know, failed to get a victory, uh, it might be a while before he permits himself to pick such a, an ambitious starting eleven. Mm, all right, uh, Michael. Meantime, you're intrigued by Norway against Turkey, given how that group's begun. Yeah. Um... That was the game I picked out at the beginning, but to be honest, we've covered Norway quite well and we've All covered right. Turkey quite well, so well, one not thing more, but I think one, that's exciting. One thing we haven't mentioned on Norway was that Christian Tortsvet scored a goal for them, his first international goal, obviously son of totally listener Eric and former Tottenham goalkeeper. Um, I don't know if 1990s goalkeepers have a WhatsApp group that descends into aggression, but um, Mark Poom's son was playing for Estonia as well mm. this week, so... He didn't score. But it's interesting that both players, both sons chose to become midfielders, which is like, you know, I'm a creative player. You're a goalkeeper. So Yeah. Evolution. It's always the way, isn't it? Mm. Um, what about you, Duncan? What's ringed in red in your international football diary? Well, international football can sometimes lack a few storylines, especially in qualifier stage. So um, people will probably be aware of the the unofficial world champion. So, you know, Scotland won it off England back in the 19th century, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, as it stands, it's Italy at the moment. Is it? Yeah, but they obviously play Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland haven't been the unofficial world champions, in inverted commas, since uh, October the 14th, 1933, which geopolitics fans might remember was the day Germany withdrew from the League of Nations, um, which kind of foreshadowed them finishing bottom of the Nations League, um, but they didn't get removed from that because UEFA changed the rules. So right. that makes you think. <laughs> right. Interesting. Uh, by the way, if you're after some statistical breakdown and analysis of why the Azuri are currently on, I think, the longest unbeaten run of any European nation over two years now, 18 matches under Roberto Mancini, which is quite a turnaround from the abject shower they'd become under Giampiero Ventura before that, uh, then you can find it where, Duncan? On theanalyst.com, there's a big uh, big feature on how uh, Mancini has revamped the Italy team. I read it. It's got lots of big pictures as well. Speaking of Italy, a surprising and, and saddening announcement on Tuesday uh, from Florence with Cesare Prandelli, former Italy manager, stepping down as the manager of Fiorentina and publishing a letter in which he cites dark moments and uh, what he calls a period of Profound distress that has prevented him being who he really is. He says, I didn't want the dark clouds inside me to affect the team. And thus he's essentially saying goodbye to the profession. Really, well, a brave decision, but a really brave letter as well from a man who's, who's been through a lot in his career. Michael, I know you're a big fan of uh, Cesare Prandelli. Yeah, I've really liked his teams over the years. His Palmer with was it Muto and Adriano, I think, mm. he had up front. And then worked wonders with Fiorentina. Um and obviously, I think with Italy, you know, he, he was quite brave with them, slightly changed the style of play. Euro 2012, I think, went went pretty well. But he's always been a he's always been a guy who I think sees a life beyond football, hasn't he? I mean, you know, when he got that Roma job in 2004, I think it was, and resigned straight away because yeah. his wife was very ill. And I think people, a lot of people took that for granted. I think there's been there's a lot of people in football who would have continued and would have put their profession first and would have kept on with that job he just signed up to do but yeah he just always struck me as a basically a nice guy and uh yeah sorry to see him go but it sounds like it's right for him 
Yeah, well, and hopefully it is a, a positive step for him and, and probably something that will help other people as well to have somebody who's been so successful, so high profile, come out and say that, that these are the issues that I've been facing and, and you know, they exist and it's it's something that we can talk about. Of course, this was his second spell at Fiorentina. He'd been wonderfully successful there back in the kind of late noughties, but uh, picked up the reins last November of this season from Beppe Iacchini, who the club... Had, uh, I would say fire, but in Italy, everyone stays on contract. And in fact, it is Iacchini who, who will come back in uh, and manage the club until the end of the season when there'll be further changes. Anyway, all the best to Cesare Prandelli. Uh, next up, ooh, we're going to hear about the WCL quarterfinals first legs and also this. Keep listening for Michael Cox versus Tom Williams in the Paddy Power Intertotally Cup. And it's live-ish. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Now, sign up for a subscription with The Athletic for unrivaled coverage on the business end of the season. It is only £4 a month, for which you get all the articles, all the podcasts ad-free and Q&As with all The Athletic's writers. Head to theathletic.com slash totally. Women's Champions League quarterfinals began this week. Chelsea and Man City involved. Also Euro giants like Barcelona and Lyon in what has been a whopping week for the women's game, certainly in Britain, with the announcement of a brand new and vast monster size TV deal. Uh, joining us now is The Athletic's Katie Wyatt. Uh, Katie, uh, thank you so much for joining us on this week of weeks. Yeah, it's a really, really massive week for women's football. It started on Monday with the announcement of the new broadcast deal, which is uh, three years of seven million a year. So it works out about 20, obviously works out 21. I don't know why I said it works out about 21 million as if we don't know the seven times table. Um, But yeah, that's a huge investment for women's football that I think all different clubs will use differently. I think that you'll have some clubs that it means that they can really start to pay bumper wages and there'll be other clubs that they can overhaul their facilities or invest in more backroom staff and there'll be others for whom it means that they're just able to survive and have a little bit more independence from men's clubs if they've not been funded properly. So that's going to have a huge impact on clubs financially and also in terms of um, how the, how many people view the game, how popular it is, how visible it is, the type of coverage that's going to be available. So that's a mammoth thing in itself that's a huge uh, going to be a huge step forward for the game in 
putting a price on its broadcasting rights and mm. then obviously we've had the women's champions league this week with really high quality matches and very exciting matches and lots of drama which has been i hate to talk about adverts for the women's game but you would struggle to find a better advert for the game than, than those games this week and then the weekend the games are staggered so that you could watch every single one of you are so inclined so there's quite a lot going on this week that's really exciting for the game Right. Oh, the, the news is brilliant, not just for the money, but also that there's twice as many games, I think, uh, on, on Sky, the new broadcast partner, but also a load of games free to air on, on, on BBC. But Wednesday night's lineup then, which you mentioned adverts for the game. Michael Cox describing Barcelona's clash with Man City as the most action packed game I've seen all season. Isn't that right, Michael? Yeah, it felt like there was uh, about 20 decent chances, a couple of penalties. It was just. It is really exciting, both both sides trying to take the game to each other. And uh, I think the, the scoreline could have been two goals either way. You know, it could have been uh, it could have been various different results, but it's a really good game. And uh, yeah, I know the, the kickoff times were a little bit weird yesterday and not everyone can spend their whole Wednesday in front of the TV watching the Women's Champions League. But I thought it was really good entertainment from from everything I saw. Hmm. City were 2-0 down when they had that that chance to get back in it with Chloe Kelly's penalty, which the commentator was kind of describing as a, a turning point. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a strange game for City yesterday because you had, on one hand, they were without Steph Horn, who's a big miss for them. And you had a lot of players who it felt like had slightly off games. I think their defence was just... On the, on the rack from the first minute and Demi Stokes obviously giving away that penalty was very uncharacteristic but I think that the likes of Ellie Roebuck and Laura Hemp who obviously won the penalty were real shining lights for City and as Michael was saying that there were lots of moments of creation despite the scoreline where realistically City on a good day I think Ellen White hit the post it felt like dozens of times and um, drove wide quite a lot and Chloe Kelly probably not as accurate as she usually is so I think that it was one of those where on a better day that for City they would have they would have been able to have two or three, but Barcelona were just so far ahead of them in terms of their build up play, their fluidity and you know, that's a team that've got a plus I think plus ninety six in the league mm. goal difference. So it, it was just I think um, amazing for people in the UK who won't watch them week in, week out or with any kind of regularity to see the flair and the build-up play in that side and just how dangerous they can be and uh, it's been a while I think we I remember watching them in Champions League finals previously and they've sort of been put to the sword by Leon. but to see how impressive they were against City I think is going to be quite terrifying for a lot of English teams and a lot of WSL teams that have Champions League aspirations. Although three goals down to Barcelona in the first leg can can City do a Liverpool Katie? I think it's a really, really big ask and I think that the biggest fear is that if Barcelona, which you can imagine they will based on yesterday's form, get an earlier away goal, then you very much feel as though it's game over. Um, I just I just feel that it's a very, very sizable ask based on Barcelona's form yesterday. I think that there are a lot of players that City are going to have to stop and get the measure of and get better at stopping and there are a lot of City players that are in turn going to have to up their game. So, I mean, I think from my perspective, I think if City... It end up not conceding in the next leg or it finishes goalless almost feels like a good result after yesterday but I don't know I mean I, I very much say never say never but it just feels a mass a very very sizable deficit for them to overturn with the threat that all the while in that game Barcelona could have the away goal that pushes them out of sight Right and meanwhile uh, Chelsea have a slender lead in their tie they're 2-1 up against Wolfsburg uh, the game's being played as is traditional in Hungary, but uh, Chelsea were the designated uh, home side 
yesterday 2-1. That Sam Kerr opener, oh my word. He did well with the return pass. Kirby's helped it on. Can Kerr find a finish here around the goalkeeper? Oh, she's done it. Magnificent from Sam Kerr. How on earth has she squeezed that in? Matt Davis-Adams there with the commentary. What did you think, Katie? What, the commentary or of the, the goal? <laughs> Sam Kerr's goal, yeah. When it happened, everyone was a little bit surprised because Wolfsburg had just been sort of dominant and were doing all these flips and tricks and just the way that they were building up. It was just like watching a head tennis game at times with those. They were just so much um, joy in their build-up play. And then for, for Chelsea to sort of take it off the other end and um, steal two goals in really quick succession was just really, really impressive for them. But for, as for the goal itself, as you were asking, it was just nothing that we haven't seen from Sam Kerr and Frank Kirby this season. But the angle was just so impressive to drag it out in the way that she did and, and finish from an angle that was almost flat to be honest it was so far out and so far down the right hand side but it was a really really wonderful composed finish from a really difficult position mm. 2-1 then the scoreline heading into the, the second leg Leon, of course uh, reigning champions once again after beating Wolfsburg in the final last August defeated Paris Saint-Germain 1-0 and Bayern had a 3-0 win at home to Rosengard Leon, Katie is this going to be the year that someone maybe an English side is going to topple them yeah, I mean, it's very tough because we say every single year uh, and as long as I've been doing the job, we've been saying it that Leon have lost someone this summer and the, this is the weakest Leon side we've seen or Leon are a lot weaker on the force that they were last year and then every single year they prove us wrong and they just play the most ridiculous football and win by the biggest margins in the final. So it's always something that I'm a bit reluctant to hang my hat on because they just always seem to find new levels and new depths and things like that. But I suppose from Chelsea's perspective, if we're discounting Manchester City from reaching the final I think that this is the best Chelsea side and arguably the best WSL side that we've ever assembled so I think if they can go all the way it's just going to be a huge marker for the Women's Super League because as much as the WSL is the most competitive league I would say in Europe in terms of the number of teams that are there and thereabouts unlike in France or Germany for example where you do have teams running away with it I think that the biggest test for the WSL sides has always been can they reach a Champions League final and can they really impressed and overcome in the last stages of the Champions League and this feels maybe the most likely that, uh, for Chelsea that for a WSL team to do that so I think it's it boards well from that perspective but obviously um, this is the first real test that they've had from European uh, competition and European opponents to see just how far that they have come because they're brushing aside people in the WSL every week without fail and you can almost set your watch by another Chelsea route each week but can they do that on the European stage and can they do that against the very best European sides I think that yesterday's game against Wolfsburg was a real good omen and now it's seeing whether they can carry that on Brilliant all right, Katie, thank you so much for being with us. Of course, uh, all your coverage of the WCL and WSL and the women's game available at theathletic.com. Second legs of those games coming up next week, and it is delicately poised, isn't it? That Chelsea Wolfsburg one, Michael. Yeah, I'm a bit more negative than Katie about Chelsea's performance and their likelihood of triumphing. I, I didn't think they played well yesterday. I mean, the second goal they scored was a complete giveaway from. Wolfsburg goalkeeper when they're playing out and I just wonder whether uh, they might have to play a little bit more cautiously in upcoming games. Emma Hayes has played three outright forwards and I think sometimes they've found themselves a bit understaffed in midfield. I think someone like Aaron Cuthbert who's played really well in the big games particularly at home to Manchester City earlier this season 
Uh, she came on later and I thought it just kind of made Chelsea a little bit more solid. And I wonder whether they'll just need to be a bit more tactically astute to get through some of these games because I thought really Wolfsburg could have been 2 or 3-0 up by half-time and uh, we would have been talking about this in a very different way. All right. Well, second leg's coming up next week. Now, to conclude today's show, yes, it's the Intertotally Cup first round. The Inter-Totally Cup, sponsored by Paddy Power. Stadiums might not yet be full, but Paddy's offers are at full capacity. Get a free bet if one leg of your 4-plus fold acca lets you down on all football matches and markets. TCC Supply, 18-plus, BeGambleAware.org. So, it's back. After last year's triumph, we've got a brand new Inter-Totally tournament beginning today. 16 of your Totally favourites will be facing off for the ultimate prize in in-house bragging rights. Today... It's round one. Coxie v Williams in a clash move to the Pushkar Stadium in Budapest due to COVID restrictions. Let's meet our contestants. Up first, representing the Principality of Wales, he is the man of a thousand footballing tongues. Oh boy, oh boy, oh, Tom Williams. Tom Williams. Eliminated at this stage last year after a tiebreaker with James Horncastle. How are you feeling? It good. Um, happy to be back uh, in this prestigious competition. Still smarting somewhat from last year's defeat um, at the hands of a frankly corrupt tiebreak system. Um, so hoping to right some wrongs, James. I see. Uh, now, a uh, novelty this year is that the winner of each match will be earning £10 for the charity of their choice, which Paddy Power will then place on a bet, also of your choosing, with the winnings also going to charity. Who will your nominated charity be, Tom? So my charity is the Music Venue Trust, which is a British charity that supports uh, grassroots music venues in the UK. Um, so uh, they were already doing some important work before the pandemic, and uh, doubly so now with with so many uh, live music venues uh, facing financial difficulties. Absolutely. All right, well, now time to meet your opponent. One more time. And his opponent. He is our reigning, defending, undisputed, universal heavyweight champion from the mean streets of Surbiton, Michael Cox. Sending a bit of a message there. With his choice of entrance music, Michael Cox, the reigning champion. Michael, you're clearly in confident mood. Uh, yeah, relatively speaking, but a difficult first round draw. I actually fully agree with Tom about last year's tiebreaker. So, um, yeah, this could be a difficult game. Could be. And a worrying uh, worrying form coming into this with that pre-tournament slip-up at the Optus for you. I won. What, I came to, what are you joking? Did you win? No. I thought you came second. Well, individually it's, it's about the it's win. about the team james it's about the three points so not uh, today it's not won. michael not today oh no yeah yeah that's a good point yeah um what's your charity of choice michael uh, i'm doing it for sparkle malawi which is uh, a charity that helps uh orphans in malawi they have links with uh kingstonian and one of our former players is running and cycling a ludicrous amount in support of them so the least i can do is sit on my backside and answer questions about football to, to help out. Mm. Is it tougher? I don't know. Not for me to say. Duncan, <laughs> what do you think? Well, I've crunched the numbers and, yeah, it's, it's it's a tough task for Tom. But, you know, Wales have occasionally shown they can pull a result out of, right. out of the bag. Let's just hope he doesn't pull Bowden over the bar on the last question. 
We shall see. Now, this year, uh, the opening series of contests will only feature general knowledge questions. The specialist subjects will be returning later on. And with that in general, mind... F- general football knowledge, right? General football knowledge, yes. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if you're ready, Tom, let's begin with your questions. Question one. Joey Barton left Fleetwood Town earlier this year, but was appointed manager of which EFL club a few weeks later? Rotherham. I'm afraid not. Michael, can you help him? In Bristol Rovers? It was Bristol Rovers. Ooh, psychological blow there early on. Uh, question two, Tom. At which club is Alan Pardew currently technical director? Oh, he left that club in Holland, didn't he? But where is he now? Totally. Listeners are all over this because they've heard us discussing it at length in our Euro edition or possibly the other ones. Have you got an answer for us, Tom? Somewhere, somewhere random, isn't it? No, I don't know. Pass. Again, Michael, can you help Tom? I'm not sure. Is it? Is someone like Levski Sophia? Is it them? Oh, we're so close. It was Seska Sophia. Seska Sophia. Right. Okay. Oh and two so far then. On to question three. Sam Allardyce has taken charge of eight different Premier League clubs. His longest spell was at Bolton. But which club would be second longest on that list? Sam Allardyce's second longest spell at a Premier League club. I'm going to say... West Ham? Is correct. Boom. He's on the scoreboard. Question four. Name the club, Tom, from this list of their shirt sponsors in the 1990s, 2000s. NEC, Danker, 1 to 1. Everton is the correct answer. Well in. And question five. Which England player missed a penalty in their shootout win over Colombia at the 2018 World Cup? So penalty shootout with Colombia, 2018 World Cup. Who was the England player that missed the penalty? That is not ringing any bells. I mean, I watched Paul Bowden and Algie's working quite well here. Yeah. Uh, John Stones? It was not John Stones. Michael? Uh, I think it was Henderson. It was Henderson. So at the end of your round, Tom, you scored two out of five. How'd you feel? Disappointed. Yeah. Okay. I did actually do some swatting up and, and none of it helped in any way whatsoever. <laughs> so yeah, it was an All afternoon right. well spent yesterday. Well, with a score of two out of five to beat, let's bring on Michael Cox. Michael, if you're ready, your first question. Which EFL club sacked Harry Kuehl earlier this month? I'm terrible with EFL questions. I'm not sure it was them, but I think Crawley is wrong. Wow. Reigning champion off to a shaky start. The correct answer was Oldham Athletic. Uh, Question two. Which Eredivisie team did Alan Pardew manage last season? Was it Vey Oh, my word. I think I know this one. 
Go on, Tom. Was it was it Adio Den Haag? It was. Well googled. Question three. That was knowledge, James. <laughs> Question three. Who is the only current Premier League manager to have won the FA Cup as both a player and a manager? So the only current Premier League player who's won the FA no, Cup as a player No, the only current man- Premier League manager yeah. to have won the FA Cup as both a player and a manager. Arteta. Is correct. Question four. This to Paul Level with Tom Williams. Name the club from this list of their shirt sponsors in the 1990s, 2000s. Muller, AST, LDV Vans, NTL. Uh, Aston Villa. Is correct. So it's all tied on two answers apiece going into Michael's final question, which is this. Question five. Who scored Croatia's goals in the 2018 World Cup final? One was Mandzukic, and I think the other was Perisic. Is that your answer, Michael? Yeah. <laughs> then you're going through to the quarterfinals of this year's Intertotally Cup. Phew. But it was tight. Oh, Tom, how do you feel? Yeah, I mean, gutting to, to, to miss out in such dramatic circumstances. And like Michael, kicking myself for literally not paying any attention to anything that happens below the Premier League. Mm. Michael, that was uh, unexpectedly tight after Tom's wobbles. Yeah, difficult one. Difficult one. Yeah, EFL questions always always trip me up. But All right. uh, well, that's yeah. that's something maybe to to work on ahead you're of saying, um, your quarterfinal. You're saying two nils a hard lead to overcome, Michael. Just just the record. When's the round on like European Cup winners and World Cup winners, things like that? Is that is that is that coming? Well, for up? those still in the competition, they can choose a specialist subject later on. But uh, we'll have more, of course, more first round drama uh, on Monday when it'll be uh, Daniel Story up against Sasha Gurionov. Wow! So, any questions on stadiums and their proximity to Napoleon uh, Napoleonic battlegrounds? <laughs> <laughs> well, We'll be right in uh, Sasha's wheelhouse. Very good. Okay. Uh, There you go. That that brings us to the end then of today's Totally Football show. Many, many thanks to Tom, to Duncan and to Michael. Any final thoughts before we let everyone head off for a weekend of sunny international football? Only that I've I've got four out of five on both rounds in my head. It's very easy when it's not the the spotlight's not beating down on your own head. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wise, wise words. Existential. Yeah, he's banging them in in training, isn't he? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) he's looked great in the nets. Duncan, you'll get your chance to see if you can do it under big game conditions when you have your first round clash with a debutant in the intertotally, Adrian Clark. Woo! Football league expert. I better get football leaguing. You had, you had. All right then. Uh, Many thanks again to everybody and you, listener, and have a great weekend. And we'll catch up with you early doors Monday. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at the Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics Football podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual places, or listen ad free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.